Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by eFish and Filson. Thank you for spending part of your day with us today. We have a fun episode. Uh, it may or may not be something that you're going to want to listen to during lunch, but it's about fish parasites. Yep, the little wee beasties that we might find in around the fish that we catch and eat. I talk with John Burroughs of the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute, and he is an expert on fish parasites. So we go over some of the most common ones, mostly uh, the Anasakis worm, which is a, it's known as a seal worm, and it is a global parasite in marine organisms. And we also touch on some of the freshwater parasites, including tapeworm, none of which you want in your belly. So we talk about where they are, how common they are, and what they will do to you if you happen to, unfortunately, pick up a weight loss buddy. Without further ado, let's go talk about We Beasties with John Burroughs. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. John Burroughs of the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute. Um, I've actually had any number of interactions with your organization, but we have never met. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Hank, very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. So today we are going to talk about fish parasites and primarily parasites that we have to care about because this is a huge, huge, huge deal in fish and seafood cookery in that it's actually kind of a fear factor for a lot of people, whether they should eat fish at all, and especially whether they should eat raw fish that's never been frozen. And I kind of want to walk through some of the ins and outs of it with you today. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Uh, we deal with some parasite issues a lot up in Alaska. So it's a fascinating topic with a lot of interest from a lot of different people. So how did you... <laughs> How did you get into parasites? Tell me a little bit about, <laughs> about your background. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually did my undergrad in history. So I'm uh, a bit of a 180 there. So did, uh, did you really? That's fascinating. Which era, if you don't mind my asking, just curious. Uh, Africa in general and military history in specific. So clearly wow. we both, we've both had, we've both gone far afield. Just a little bit, a little bit of drift there, but <laughs> still very interesting. Um, so I did that and then um, did some work in law, actually, and then ended up going to grad school overseas in Iceland at one of the um, at a program run in English over there. But it was all about uh, coastal marine sciences and fisheries management and all of the different uh, many inputs that go into uh, seafood production and commercial fisheries. And uh, from there, ended up writing a thesis that was pretty relevant to uh, my current role uh, about like how to market small boat fishery in Iceland that needed to. Uh, reroute its product a little bit. And uh, from there, ended up out here in Alaska. Not too dissimilar from Iceland as far as uh, fisheries goes. Obviously, a lot of cultural differences. I was like going to say, it's kind of like <laughs> liter literally a lateral move. Like you just move. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's more of a longitudinal move, if you think about it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's actually something they joke about here is, um, well, over there, so everything's the 66 parallel. You know, give 66 North as the primary clothing brand, et cetera. And we're not too much further South. So really just uh, same spot on the globe, just a little bit further West. So what's 66 North in Alaska's where? Well, that's not here. That's Iceland. I know. Uh, basically, I know. yeah. Uh, further North, I want to say it's probably in the uh, Central Alaska, probably North Anchorage a little bit, probably somewhere between Anchorage and Fairbanks. Okay. Okay. So that, yeah, <laughs> I, cause I know you're in Southeast, or Southeast uh, Alaska in Juneau, right? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, we're uh, technically state employees, so the entire office is uh, located in Juneau. 
I've spent much time in Juneau, actually. It's a, for those of you out there who have not been to Juneau, Alaska, it's, I think, the smallest capital city in the United States. I mean, Cheyenne might be smaller, but... Uh, if it's, it's not, it's definitely up there. And uh, one of the claims to fame with Juneau is always, we have the world's smallest Costco. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to it. Yep, yep. Uh, just It's primarily serves the cruise ships as they restock, but it's... Uh, we certainly benefit from having it here in town. And I think it's the only, well, obviously probably uh, Hawaii's capital is going to be the same deal, but imagine they have roads in and out. Juno is inaccessible by road. You have to fly or boat in. That's true. That's true. Which apparently can be quite dicey when the legislature is in session. <laughs> certainly can be. And the weather doesn't help in the winter either. I learned the word snane from Juno. Did you really? Yes. So which... <laughs> So snain is like, it's like snow and rain at the same time. And it just really sucks. Yep. I, when I moved here, the first thing I learned was uh, the term atmospheric river. I had not encountered that elsewhere, but <laughs> quite common here. Oh God. It's a rainforest and it's, but it's a cold yep. rainforest. Exactly. People don't necessarily realize that the Tongass National Rainforest, you know, is basically carved out of. So we are surrounded on all sides by this dense, lush forest that requires just constant rainfall to maintain itself. And lots of mushrooms. Absolutely. <laughs> the foraging culture in Alaska in general, but Southeast in particular is just uh, absolutely ludicrous. People oh, are able to stock for you know months and years sometimes with just berries and fish and you know, fireweed. And it just people just have some of the craziest cabinets uh, you'll find out here. I know. Hey, actually, I kind of want to start on that. Um, I don't know how much you know about the, not necessarily parasites, but the toxins in shellfish. But that might be yeah. something in your purview. And that's something that people need to know, even though it's not technically a parasite, it's, you know, for all intents and purposes, it is. Um, yeah. The two big ones are PSP amnesiac shellfish poisoning, right? Yeah, uh, there's a few of them. The PSP is usually the one that gets talked about. And a lot of how that's dealt with is um, harvest timings. Just if it's in an area that you know algal blooms occur where some of that toxin can make it out. That's something that... Um, the state, so ADF and G, uh, that's uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game and Department of Environmental Conservation, collaborate very closely on to monitor. And as far as just setting harvest timings and closing certain locations, it's something that they uh, take a lot of vested time and interest in to make sure that that's not an issue. Where you run into some issues like that are, as you say, so some of the foraging efforts or self-harvest or you know, small scale, not subsistence necessarily, but also subsistence and sport use. Just stuff that's less regulated. That's not commercially being produced. It's not necessarily uh, as entrenched in the regulations or the seasoning. Just you know, people on a beach who think they found a nice scallop and you know <laughs> can have a problem. Right. Um, There's a place yeah. not too far from Juno called Murder Cove. Yeah. Are you yep, familiar with it? Slightly. I myself am not terribly involved in the forgings, but I have heard uh, that's a spot to be avoided. <laughs> and the name is. Uh, <laughs> kind of indicative of that. Yeah. So the story goes, and I, uh, this is the story has been related to me by people from in and around Juno, is that back in the day, a Russian fur trading ship anchored in what is now Murder Cove, and they were very hungry. So they took skiffs out and hit the beach, and they hit the beach at low tide, and there were clams everywhere. And they dug all, you know, as much clams as they want, and they all ate the clams, and they all died. And we don't know what it was. It was probably PSP is paralytic shellfish poisoning. And then is PS is this one the same as do you get 
paralytic shellfish poisoning from domoic acid, or is domoic acid the one that gives you amnesiac shellfish poisoning, which is the other? That's one? yeah, that's domoic acid is the amnesiac one. It's a great uh, way to meet new people every day. <laughs> it definitely can be, or uh, as long as it keeps you around. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, both of those are concerns, as I said, that are monitored with a lot of effort by the state. Uh, in fact, the state just uh, this past year made live Dungeness harvesting plan that deals with that in particular. Uh, so there's a lot of information collected uh, before um, any of that can be harvested or used. And again, those are primarily to control paralytic shellfish toxin as well as domoic acid. And these two are primarily a Pacific thing from what I understand. Although in the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic, well, I remember because I grew up in New Jersey, I remember you would get something called a red tide. Yeah. And a red tide, I think, is different, but you maybe know better. I think it is. Um, I'm not entirely sure of what toxins are um, going on in that compared to a PSP or a domoic acid. But it's going to be a similar basis. It's things that are coming from algal blooms um, that can get into the meat, the edible portion of the shellfish itself. And, uh, you know, a cook step doesn't get rid of it. Freezing doesn't get rid of it. And that's why it's so problematic and something that has to be really controlled at the harvest level to avoid certain times of the year. And I think that's pretty ubiquitous, uh, despite whatever toxin you're dealing with. It's kind of that way for uh, all of those shellfish toxins. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Every time I talk about clams and mussels and shellfish, I'll get somebody from the Midwest or the interior of the country talking about the freshwater versions, and, which there are freshwater clams and freshwater mussels. They're almost, to my knowledge, almost all of them are either protected by law or mm-hmm. they are, <laughs> the advisories against eating them are so strong because the thing that you have to deal with in the middle of the country and in the East and to some extent in the South is pollution. And right. these bivalves can accumulate enormous amounts of heavy metals and other toxins from pollution. And so it's actually either sewage issues or heavy metals are the two big uh, reasons why they'll close a beach in the East Coast or in the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes sense because they're, you know, these bivalve organisms are essentially filter feeders and they're filtering out everything in the water that makes it down to them. It accumulates in their muscle tissue and you just don't want to eat that necessarily. So from a marketing standpoint, so now when you get into like, okay, now that we've scared everybody for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So from a marketing standpoint, there are tests for this, right? Yeah, there are. There's commercial grade tests that um, a lot of industry members will use. There's harvesting plans that have a negative test before you can perform harvest. They have to have it negative before, like with the lot that goes in, that all has to be approved by uh, relevant regulating authorities. Uh, And again, that's going to vary speaking in sort of broad terms, but, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of more nuance into a particular species sampling plan in an area. So it's not even just like for a species, it might be a species in a particular beach has considerable rules around it. And that, that expands to other species as well, but that this is sort of, uh, again, there are controls in place that keep these things out of the commercial harvest um, right. in particular. Right. And when I did research for my latest cookbook, which is Hook, Line, and Supper, um, Love it. I have, I have a, thank you. <laughs> I have a very large section on food safety. And this is this basically this episode of the podcast is the podcast that is going to surround that food safety part of that book. And a big piece of that is there's a ton of testing done on you know stuff you buy. So right. even though you can't uh, pick mussels, for example, in Tomales Bay, this is a good example. So mm-hmm. 
California has a muscle quarantine from about Easter to Halloween. In those warmer months, you just can't. They may not be poisonous, but they probably are. And so, but there's a Tamales Bay Oyster Company, like right there. And they sell oysters and mussels all year long. And the difference is those commercially sold bivalves are all tested before sale. And I'm certain, I bet you if I had those guys on the air, they'd be like, yep, there are some times we can't sell. (laughs) Right. No, absolutely. I think that you find that across the board for anybody dealing with shellfish, that they do get positive tests. And that's a lot that they can't put in the market. And that's just part of doing business in this industry. Yeah. And it's usually pretty good because part of the research I did for the book was to look at foodborne illness uh, recordings from Mm -hmm. fish and seafood with a CDC. And virtually all of the shellfish-related foodborne illnesses from just guys like me picking up stuff and eating it as opposed to store-bought. Yep, and I think that just that goes as a showing of just how effective some of the regulations are and how intensively this is scrutinized before it makes it into an actual, you know, for-sale market. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. Are you ready for summer? eFish delivers only in-season, never-frozen, wild, American-caught seafood right to your doorstep. How do they do that? eFish doesn't have a warehouse full of fish. Instead, their Harvester Direct Seafood ships your order directly to you from the source. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place your order. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they put harvesters and our oceans first What does that mean? Small boat operations, hook and line caught fish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. Truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. At eFish, they want you to see food confidently. So if you want access to Harvester Direct in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out eFish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get $15 off your first order with my special coupon code hunt gather talk that coupon code is hunt gather talk once again that's e-fish.com turning to fish what are the primary fish parasites or other vectors for foodborne yeah. animals that you deal with up in alaska so the primary one that we deal with um especially in terms of parasites are roundworms so nematodes they're endemic to the Pacific, especially northern Pacific. They d- tend to do better in cold water. We're dealing with primarily from the Anasacidae family. Uh, there are several species of roundworms. They're very hard to tell apart. And these are the seal worms, right? They're, that's a common name. Yeah. Yeah, that's one way to describe them. Seal worms, they get into any marine mammal, really. I mean, dolphins aren't as common up in Alaska, but they get, up, they get in there as well. Um, but here, yes, primarily they're coming off of seals. They do a very complex life cycle. They have three hosts over the course of that life cycle. Humans are not usually part of that, but they can be. And that usually happens at the last stage. So they go from an egg to a free-swimming larvae. That free-swimming larvae is eaten by crustaceans, like tiny free-swimming crustaceans. Those crustaceans are eaten by fin fish, like salmon or white fish or any fin fish. And then those in turn are eaten by uh, marine mammals or us. And that's where you can have uh, human crossover occasionally. So describe for me the ideal, like if I'm a seal worm, an Anasakis worm, yeah. uh, how would I live my best life? 
how so I, I make, I, to the, I think, make I think to the I, parasite Instagram. Exactly. I, I think <laughs> I start being pooped out by a marine mammal, right? As an egg. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. So they leave the gut mucosa of the marine mammal as a an egg. That egg just sort of free floats for a while. Eventually, the water in particular makes it viable. Uh, and it forms the free swimming larvae that eventually hatches and swims around a little bit with the whole point of it free swimming to be eaten by some sort of shrimp or crab or crab larvae or just a free swimming crustacean. How big uh, does this larva get? They are quite small at this stage, if not microscopic, probably not microscopic. I'm not entirely sure like how big the larvae itself is. But like head um, of a pin or smaller? Yeah. Probably, I mean, maybe a little bit bigger than that. I do think you can observe them with the naked eye. I could be wrong about that. We primarily deal with them a little bit later on in their life cycle. Right. But yeah, I mean, these are small enough that they're being eaten by very, very small crabs and crustaceans. So, and then those will they'll develop a little bit in the hemocele, uh, which is the just the digestive tract of something that small. Okay. Um, and then from there, they're eaten by fish. And so they just hang out. So like, so yeah. they're alive in that, let's say krill. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be alive. They'd be uh, not necessarily thriving. That's not where they want to stay, but they're, ha they're, you know, just sort of hanging out in there. And then eventually a uh, fin fish eats them and they make their way to the fish's gut and they're released to the digestive tract. And from there they can move. And this is where it becomes an issue for fish consumption. They don't necessarily stay in the digestive tract right. um, of fin fish. They can migrate a bit and end up in the actual muscle tissue. Okay, so let me stop for a second. Are they only Pacific or do they exist throughout the rest of the Gulf the, and the Atlantic? They exist just about everywhere. I thought um, so. Yeah, there's several different species types, but Anasacidae in particular is kind of just everywhere. But ne nematodes in particular are really just everywhere. We have different endemic families and species, but they all sort of serve the same niche and function. And it's just sort of a thing that occurs everywhere with uh, a marine ecosystem. It's just a niche that's easily occupied by this type of organism, and they are everywhere because of it. Yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, because I think yep. I've seen them in, I think I remember seeing them in Fluke in New Jersey back in the day. Yep. Yep. So what we're talking about out there is like, if you, this is the watch spring worm we're talking about. It looks like a little coil. Right. I always described it as they kind of look like microscope pictures of Ebola, which isn't, isn't good. That's a little esoteric. That's kind of, yeah, a it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's not, so, it's not something you want to describe to people that way, but it does kind of look that way. It's a little coiled string, but it's absolutely uh, visible to the naked eye. And I'll, I'll post a couple of pictures in the show notes so you can see, but yeah, I mean, they just, they are kind of everywhere, but they, yeah, when they get to the points where they're in the fish, they are very much visible to the naked eye. So the theory or the thought is that bottom fish are more susceptible than pelagics. Is that true? They can be, but more often than not, we're dealing with free swimming fin fish. So it's in things like um, salmon, cod, pollock, uh, different varying concentrations, of course. And there's a lot that goes into where and why they are proliferating. Not necessarily anything that's causative. A lot of it's just correlation, if that makes sense. <laughs> It's just not something that we have a lot of guesses as to why and how some of this is happening. A lot of proposals, not necessarily supported, but just distributions like can be tied to marine mammal abundance, which of course is where they're coming from. Uh, physical water properties, location to harvest, available host pathways. So like how many of the three at least organisms are present 
And these all have cascade effects that can make it difficult to pinpoint the cause. So there's a lot that we can correlate to why they're present in, in certain amounts, but not necessarily one like smoking gun that we can definitively say, oh, it's, you know, it's a year where there's a lot less of this particular krill. So there's probably going to be less parasites. I want to get into that. But before that, yeah. do we know why? Because most of them are going to be in the guts of the fish, which we generally don't eat. But the problem is when they're in the meat of the fish. So do we know why they move into the meat of the fish? Not necessarily. There's been a lot of thoughts that it could be post-mortem where after the fish dies and its usual habitat or at least preferred habitat of the gut starts going under, um, you know, because it's dead, undergoing certain changes with different pH level, decomposition, et cetera. And the fish sort of moves or the, the nematode rather moves out of that gut and into the muscle tissue. But nothing's really demonstrably proved that. It's all been kind of... Uh, theoretical and nothing is sort of shown that necessarily what's going on. So it's, there's some thought that maybe it was tied to storage um, or handling, but even some of the studies looking at that have seen that the percentage that was in the muscle tissue was pretty much identical for ones that were uh, analyzed immediately after being uh, harvested. So ones that were butt on the boat, killed immediately and immediately checked for parasites. It was about the same as ones that they allowed to sit as dead for a little bit and then checking them. So that sort of indicates probably less migration. It still could be a thing that's going on, but this again, it's ongoing discourse with the scientific community of how that's being looked at. Yeah. I mean, I can corroborate that on the field too, because, uh, you know, since I was a teenager, I've always heard that, oh, if you, the worms travel into the meat after the fish is dead. So if you're in a place that gets a lot of worms, uh, got your fish on the boat and put it right. on ice. Well, right. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I fished aboard, you know, with our mutual friend, Tyson Fick aboard the Heather Ann, yep. right? And every now and again, we will run into uh, a patch of sockeyes, typically sockeyes because they're krill eaters. Yeah. Um, that we've had problems. Like it's this happened twice while I was fishing with Tyson, where some fish that are they're netted, they're bled, they're pressure bled, and they're like it's the highest level of boat care that is possible. And and yet twice in my you know short fishing career with Tyson. We've had fish that were done perfectly that we had to refund the customer because there were worms in it and, right. and like an, an unacceptable amount of worms, which is to say like a lot, you slice, you slice <laughs> yeah. a plate and you're like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, again, these are all wild animals, especially up in Alaska where it's wild by law. So they're all a part of these dynamic and ever-changing ecosystems. And that's just going to be something that happens because of that. Um, you know, you're not controlling every variable that can possibly impact the product like you can with, you know, a terrestrial farm or something like that. Right. You know, there's just so much more free will <laughs> involved in wild fish and what they're doing and the, the course of their lives before capture. And as part of that, some of them are going to be laden with parasites. So um, talk to me about those correlations now, like, because you, you, you know, talked a little bit about uh, water temperature about presence of seals and things and and other stuff. Right. So what are like if do we know if there's like a perfect storm of like oh crap there's gonna be parasites everywhere? Even that we can say that there's a lot of variables that would indicate it, but you'll sometimes have that happen and go out and there's just not a ton of parasites. Still, it is still something that's being understood more with a lot of evolving discourse. But um, general predictions are just if there's going to be more marine mammals. If the water is going to be uh, a little bit warmer, although they do prefer colder water, but in those colder waters, like a warmer time, 
and if all of the organisms that are part of its life cycle are present in significant amounts. At that point, you can make a decent prediction. And actually, the European Union has done uh, a lot of work on this. And there's been a few studies setting standards based on essentially algorithms where they compiled a lot of data into um, certain databases that they could go back to and say, well, based on historical evaluation, we've seen this area spikes of parasites this time and sort of assigning values based on that. And then getting sort of a value system that will spit out uh, for this area, you probably need to harvest this time to have as minimal parasites as possible. And they've had decent results with some of the pilot projects around that. I don't know that there's anyone who's using that actively in uh, commercial harvest, but it's just is something that's uh, just gone on. So you can sort of get data together that in that way and have a reasonable approximation of what might be going on. But at the same time, we're seeing a lot of not unpredictable, but certainly atypical weather and uh, seasons and warming situations where it can be a little bit trickier than maybe what an algorithm can deal with. So some of that stuff's just, again, still ongoing. And it's always fascinating because it's always just evolving knowledge, right? We're just constantly adding to the conversation around these topics. And as we find out more, systems will adjust, but it's just a fascinating work space to be in where there's always new information coming out. Have we seen any change in the incidence of fish carrying these parasites over time? We have, especially with um, efforts to really support the marine mammal population, which is a bit ironic, you know? I mean, uh, fur bags. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Every yeah. fisherman hates fur bags. Yep, exactly. I mean, just if you do have a greater number of the marine mammals that are a part of this animal's life cycle, you're going to have more of that particular organism. Mm. And um, that's just kind of how it is. And there, the marine mammals are an important part of the ecosystem as well. It's definitely a worthwhile effort to keep those populations very healthy. But as the result, there will be times when there's a little bit more parasites coming out of them. Hmm. I would love to do a podcast on how many sea lions is enough. Because <laughs> I just fished yeah. off San Clemente Island and San Clemente Island is one of the channel islands in Southern California. And we had sea lions all over us every second of the day. Like yep. and we fished all night long. Like they, apparently they never sleep. <sighs> yeah, no, they're pretty active. And up here we get the stellars too. So not only are they the active, monsters. but they're also yeah, they're you know the size of a silverback gorilla. Uh, bigger <laughs> actually, aren't, aren't they? Yeah, no, ton? Yeah. Oh yeah, they're massive. Like, one of those jumps out of the water. It's just oh, I guess that's what happened to dinosaurs. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had like one a, swim through our nets on the Heather Ann once, which was super not. Oh fun. man, I, I've seen them up close a couple of times up by like Seward, Alaska which has a massive population also you know, has the uh, Alaska Sea Life Center. So they do a lot of really good conservation work with them. But um, they have one up there that's basically trained as a showman. And he just, he knows <laughs> when he has an audience and makes an entrance and jumps out of the water. And he's about the size of a small baby elephant, not a small elephant. <laughs> that's wow. how he kind of looks. And he just jumps out of the water like an acrobat. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, nobody wants, I, let me rephrase that. I don't hate Fur bags. I, uh-huh. you, just general, have a, I just, you just have a nickname for them. That's there seems to be there seems to be a lot of, like way more of them. And I you know I would actually is a pretty good idea for a podcast. It's like okay, are we there yet? And then if we're there, like then what do you do? Like because it's not like right. I mean, there's only so many you know native native groups that actually eat them. So right. I'm pretty sure you're not going to see like seal burger at McDonald's. So <laughs> <laughs> not in the near future, I don't think. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's probably um, a lot of conversations being had at sort of high levels about how that needs to be balanced. But at the same time, it's a population group that's been 
pretty decimated over the la- in recent history. So it's not a bad thing that we have. How recent? Um, I'm not yeah, so sure it's well, not recent anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, in terms of the history of the ecosystem up here, pr- quite recent. But yeah, your point's noted. I mean, it's over a century, right, bit. since they've stopped yeah, hunting. Yeah. Yes. But the recovery for those organisms is, you know, not a given thing. So there is management conversations at the same time. Fishing game has to balance all of that. I mean, that's why their job is so hard. Like these are very diverse um, ecosystems, with not just diversity in terms of the, the organisms, but in terms of the stakeholders. You know, the commercial fish folks are going to not necessarily be super happy with uh, folks who just want to keep the seal population at all costs and vice versa. So those conversations are always ongoing. And that's why some of the um, management side is such a transparent and involved process with folks like ADF and G needing to talk to uh, NOAA all the time with uh, NIMPS, the National Marine Fisheries Service, and how all of that needs to interplay and setting, you know, not just all of the species uh, of fish, but how they interact with, you know, the marine mammal population. It's really fascinating and dynamic work that they have to do. Yeah, I mean, it is. It definitely is. So back on anisakids, um, yeah. I can absolutely tell you through ane- lots of anecdotal evidence that there's certain fish get more of them than others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in your purview, the bottom, it, it's all bottom fish. It's, it's bottom fish, like hardhead rockfish, which not the pelagic rockfish. Right. It's halibut. And then on the East Coast, it's monkfish. Monkfish are notorious. I used to work at a fish and seafood restaurant. And one of my main jobs was to prep that day's, you know, whatever we got that day. And we had a light box. And this is true with codfish as well. Uh, again, codfish in both oceans are bottom species. And we had a light box, which is essentially a big, you know, box with a kind of a translucent glass top that has a light underneath it. And so you put the fillet down and it shines through the fillet, which is translucent. Right. And you can see the watch springs inside it. And it was my job to, to cut them out. And I've never seen a monkfish tail that did not have at least one worm. <laughs> that sounds accurate from what I've heard of monkfish. We don't deal with them very extensively up here, but correlates what I've heard before. But what you described is actually still the most common method of detection. Uh, we call it candling. Mm. Um, works primarily best with whitefish because those fillets are you know, essentially translucent. So when you get those fillets over top of that lit table, they really do stand out. And you can go in with a tweezer and just you know yank them out. And that's uh, still primarily how that's done in the commercial industry. Yeah. I mean, oh, the, uh, the other one that's out here in the Pacific Ocean is the jack smelt. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Like, unbelievable yeah. numbers of worms. Like, I've never, like, this is why I don't catch them anymore. They're, it's, I've seen maybe two or three jack smelt that didn't have them, but I've had jack smelt with 20 of them. And the fish is only 16 inches long. Yeah. Yeah. It can hit sometimes that way. Um, we definitely have had incidences of um, certain fish in certain times of the year where you'll see very small fillet with a lot of them. At the same time, like even with those massive pervasive uh, events like that, these really aren't a health risk. It's primarily a yuck factor with parasites. There is anisakiasis, which is um, when it does actually infect a human, but that is pretty rare. Hey, everybody. I wanted you to know that this podcast, Hunt, Gather, Talk, the season three, is a companion to my latest cookbook, which is Hook, Line, and Supper. Hook, Line, and Supper is probably the only fish and seafood cookbook you're ever going to need. It is a comprehensively written, lushly illustrated book that covers both freshwater and salt. And it is kind of the crowning achievement of what I've done in terms of all of my cookbooks over the years, because I have been fishing 
for decades and decades and decades. And I have fished all over the country and I have eaten basically anything that lives in the water. And you are going to find that expertise in hook, line, and supper. I wanted to give you guys, as listeners of my podcast, a special offer. If you go to my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, you can get to it at huntgathercook.com. And you go to the buy the book section and you buy a copy of not just Hook, Line, and Supper, but any of the books on that website, you will get 20% off your checkout by using the coupon code HuntGatherTalk. So once again, if you are interested in buying the cookbook that underlies this podcast, go to my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, that is HuntGatherCook.com, and go to the buy the book section and use the coupon code HuntGatherTalk, and that will give you 20% off your order. One more thing, if you buy three books or more, I will upgrade your shipping to UPS from Media Mail, which will get it to you much, much faster. Again, the coupon code is HuntGatherTalk on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Uh, it's HuntGatherCook.com. And thank you for listening. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> nobody gets sick from these little watch spring Anasaka seal worms unless they're eating raw fish, right? That's correct. Okay. So now on the raw fish, the or, raw or, fish or, well, unsuitably cooked, not cooked enough or not frozen. You can also kill these with freezing. Yes. Uh, yes. And that, that's important because that's how it's controlled in something like um, a sushi or sashimi product. Exactly. That somebody is going to eat raw. They freeze it for a certain amount of time. And as the temperature gets lower, the amount of time that freezing needs to happen, obviously, shortens. L- um, all right. Tell me, yeah. what is it? What are the protocols? Because people definitely want to hear this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's three different freezing protocols by the FDA. First one's freezing at minus 4F, uh, which is, I think it's around minus 20C, uh, or below for seven days. Or you can freeze at minus 31F for 15 hours. Or you can freeze at minus 31F or below until solid and store for 24 hours at minus 4F. Or you can cook to an internal temperature of 145F. And that's the four accepted protocols there to uh, eliminate in a second. Okay. So in real terms, in terms of 95% of the people listening to this, minus 4 Fahrenheit is a good modern kitchen freezer. Yep. Uh, pretty much any chest freezer, but that's it. There's nothing that you can have at home that goes to 31 below. No, no, no. Generally, that would be an industrial freezer. Right. Um, yeah, so minus 4F, and you're going to store it for a week. Yep. And that'll, it, that'll kill anything in there. And let me step away from our sealworm for a second. This is incredibly important for everyone listening out there. If you want to eat freshwater fish as ceviche or poke or sushi or whatever, because unlike Anasakis worms, and we're going to talk about what they do to you in a second, unlike Anasakis worms, tapeworms in freshwater, they like people and right. you can get massively messed up. In fact, the number one vector for tapeworm infection in the United States year after year after year is raw or undercooked trout. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So it's, these kind of worms are available in different flavors, let's say, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they can be controlled uh, through these methods pretty effectively. And so to tie a bow on that one, everybody out there who has eaten sushi, which is probably more than half of you, there's this weird myth. It's like, is it fresh? Like, well, right? <laughs> it's probably the- been blast chilled and thawed properly, but you don't want to be sitting there eating raw salmon that's never right. been frozen. And I guarantee you, there's a dude out there who's probably from Washington State who's like, I've been eating raw salmon my whole life and nothing's ever happened to me. Bah, 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 bah. Right. And he's 
probably right and that it passed right through him and didn't cause an issue. Exactly. Uh, so let's go into that. So, okay. So let's say I eat a raw piece of, actually, let's start with this. Can you get poisoning from these Anasakis worms and not see the worm? I, and in other words, like, can you, if you candled a piece of fish and there are, you cannot right. see any worms, <clears throat> are you good to go? Or are there worms that are invisible to that candling process that can still get you? That can still happen. We see that the most with something like a salmon. That fillet is not as opaque or translucent as a whitefish fillet. They can be harder to see in a candling process. So it's less common that they're in there, but it is going to be something that it's harder to necessarily pick out. And yeah, they, it still can be get through the sieve, so to speak, and end up in the final product. But again, that's why we encourage those control methods at the uh, consumer stage to either freeze or to cook. But to be clear, the ones that can get you are visible. Right. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So that's yeah. a, that was a question I actually had coming into this podcast because it's unclear in the fishing community whether it's, you know, in, in other words, like if you talk to a diver, it's not the shark you see that's the problem. Um, right. You know, the thought in the fishing community is we don't know. It's not the worm you see that's the problem. So we didn't know if there was like some weird larva that's invisible to the naked eye or blah, blah, blah. So apparently... If you're 100% right, you get all of the worms out, you're good to go. Is that correct? At least with anisakids, I've never heard of the more premature larvae uh, causing anisakiasis. But I don't necessarily think that we can definitively say that. Okay. But probably it's, you're good to go. <laughs> you're, yeah. Yeah. The one that's known to be able to, in certain circumstances, actually latch into like the human digestive system is the more advanced worm that's at least coming that's developed in the fish stage. If you were to get one of those ones, it's not as visible. Again, you'd be eating probably like a krill. <laughs> and I don't know a lot of people actively doing that uh, and exposing themselves to maybe the uh, the free swimming larvae or anything like that. But people eat spot prawns and stuff. They do. They do. And But you don't usually see any sakiasis coming out of them. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about anisakiasis or, or seal worm poisoning. Yeah. So... Yeah. You talk about, let's use that guy from Washington who's grumpy. Chances are he's never had a worm attached. So talk to me about, okay, let's say you eat 10 worms what are, you know, right. over, over time. What are your chances of getting sick? And then if you do sick, what happens? Um, you're still probably not going to get sick just because they're not, we're not a great host for them. We're not their usual thing. It's not like they're, it's not like the fluke where it's like, oh, we can thrive here. But what you can deal with is still not, not very pleasant. I do want to separate. There's anisakiasis, which is the actual infection where the worm like is able to latch onto and feed from your digestive tract versus allergic reactions. Uh -huh. um, people can be allergic to nematodes. And that's a different reaction. But if you're dealing with an actual infection, not necessarily the best parasite because they tend to have some pretty unpleasant symptoms, which is, you know, most parasites want to go unnoticed. So that's the other thing with your guy in Washington state. Uh, <laughs> the, good thing, <laughs> the good thing is though, with these worms, you're less likely to have something like that where it can, it can survive long-term, but you have abdominal pain, nausea, uh, distension, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, distension, you feel bloated or? Yeah, abdominal distension. So some pretty uncomfortable bloating, swelling, blood mucus in the stool and uh, mild fever. And for allergies, so if somebody just is allergic to this, they can have a rash and itching, uh, very, very rarely anaphylaxis, and that's about it. Hmm. So let's say I get the food poisoning from, you know, Mr. Sealworm. 
And right. then what happens? Is it just, did, he finally dies and it, you just, it just goes away, right? Yeah, you eventually just pass it in stool. <laughs> Are we talking is, 24 hours a week? I think it's, it varies. It would depend on the particular organism you ingested and how successful it's been and able to get to, your, um, to the nutrients it needs. I think the most common I've heard is a couple of days to a week, but um, I'm not entirely sure on that. Gotcha. And so uh, that's interesting to hear that like a different species of seal worm or anisakis worm, some are nastier than others. They could be. Um, I've not seen a comparative study done that's sort of comparing uh, food poison, uh, poisonings from different types, but it's just theoretically that could be the case. Because uh, as you mentioned, maybe there's some that are more acclimated to the human digestive system than others. Got it. So back to the sort of the initial bit of that question. So let's say 10 different times I ingest a live worm. Mm-hmm. Do we have any sense of what my chances of getting sick on any of those 10 times are? Um, I would say it's pretty low. Not necessarily, I'd probably say less than one, but I'm not entirely sure on that, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, we do not count it as a very frequent illness that, that happens a lot, mostly because just the controls are so effective. But if you were to just go ham and start ingesting fish all the time, like crazy without any, any mm. of those kill steps. Monkfish uh, tail sushi. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that wasn't frozen or anything ahead of time. Uh, I, I still think you're dealing with probably less than one in 10, just because for the most part, it's not something that we see all that often. But again, I'm not entirely sure on that. Okay. Um, but it's not like, yeah. you know, oh, you're probably going to get sick. Not necessarily. I still, I hesitate just because I've not seen a lot of research in that spectrum. Okay. Um, and I don't want to, you know, make a claim there. But generally, it's not that somebody that we've seen too often. I'm actually surprised that they can handle your stomach acid. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's, um, I guess it does make sense a bit just because it's a digestive worm. <laughs> so there's going to be varying levels of stomach acid in some of these organisms, you know, again, three different hosts over its life cycle. So they have to deal with varying immune systems. And these are from different, completely different evolutionary chains. You know, it's crabs and small crustaceans to fin fish to marine mammals, you know. Mm very different branches of evolution, very different organisms, and they uh, have to survive in all three of them. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. No, I mean, they're absolutely an evolutionary like marvel as far as what they're able to do. So what are the other parasites that you deal with on the regular in the Pacific? That's really the biggest one is nematodes. They're kind of, if not 99, then at least 95% of what we deal with. There's a couple other species that can show up. Well, families. Well, you mentioned um, flukes before. Yeah. Yeah. And those are less common here. Is that Maybe. more of a warm weather thing? I believe so. It's just not one that we see very often in Alaska species. It might be something the fishing game deals with more on the sport fishing side for like um, freshwater, for like uh, trout and things that we don't have commercial fisheries for. But on the commercial side, it really is almost entirely nematodes. And outside of anisakids, you will occasionally have like Pseudoterranova family or the Contrasecum. I can never say that one. Um, <laughs> Where do they show uh, up? Usually the same species. It's going to be finfish. And that's very similar and probably very hard to differentiate between unless you have uh, an epidemiologist on hand who deals with them regularly. They're all going to be watch brain worms. Gotcha. So why uh, is there any reason that you shouldn't eat raw uh, shrimp or raw? Let's say raw, you know, Dungeness crab. What could get you there? So with raw crab in particular, you're want to go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the shellfish toxins. 
that's really the issue that will show up with them. And that doesn't matter whether it's raw or cooked. That's correct. That's correct. But it is the primary concern with shellfish. And again, for that one, it's really about harvest intake, how that's managed to make sure that it's a safe product with uh, beach closures, things like that. What about uh, spot prawns? Because there's a long tradition of eating raw spot prawns in Alaska. To be honest with you, I've not heard too many instances of parasites coming out of spot prawns. Um, I would have to sort of check back with uh, some ADF and G folks to see what they deal with. But um, at least for, for what we see, it's almost entirely nematodes. What's fascinating is in my book, I caution heavily against mm-hmm. eating raw shrimp because for the rest of the country, and this may be a warm water thing, raw shrimp are the leading cause of foodborne illness among non-bivalves in the United States. So everybody wants to eat raw shrimp sushi and they're not getting it from a sushi restaurant. And right. there are actual things that will give you liver flukes and raw yeah. and raw shrimp, uh, especially in the Gulf and especially in, you know, really anywhere, anywhere there's shrimp except for Alaska, which is why, you know, when Tyson, our mutual friend Tyson was like, yeah, let's eat some raw spot prawns. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to cook these. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I would. Based on that and some of what I've heard previously, that, that indicates to me it is primarily a, an issue of water temperature. And cold water does tend to have less successful niches for parasites in general. It just it's a little bit more difficult for them. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me. But yeah, there is definitely a uh, widespread cultural thing of raw shrimp up here. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it freaked me out when I first like, yeah, I'm going to pass on that one. Although yeah. if you go to, again, back to sushi, if you go to a sushi restaurant, Spot prawns and their cousins, the coon stripes, are the amaebi, the sweet shrimp that you get at a sushi place. And those are very specifically, I think in Japan, they're all from Hokkaido, which is the far northern yeah. island. So it's again, it's right. water. Absolutely. But, you know, anytime you're dealing with raw fish, there are some other things that can pop up. You know, a couple of things that we have a lot of controls around up here are um, listeria and botulinum. Really? Um, Talk about yeah. that. So listeria and seabot, uh, so are a couple of different bacteria. Seabot. <laughs> yeah, that's got to have the fun names for them. So listeria monocytogenes, it's just a bacterial infection, whereas C. botulism is also a bacteria, but you're not- How do you pick up listeria from fish? Sorry. Primarily, both of these are concerns of ready-to-eat product. So this is going to be stuff that's out of the bag, ready to go, like a smoked, a smoked product or something like that, or like a serine and it's contamination can occur at different stages of processing. So it's why people have to be really, really careful and have their processing plans be really dialed in to make sure it stays out of the product. And that's why you see there's um, something called HACCP, yep. you know, hazard analysis and critical control points, as well as GMPs, uh, good manufacturing practices that are adjusted not only on the species specific level, but also on the plant specific level. So anyone producing products of this type has to have very mindful consideration and plans in place to keep these organisms out of the product as much as possible. With both Listeria and uh, botulinum, they're both kind of everywhere, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of hard to keep it out of product. So it's got to be very, not necessarily a white glove affair, but there's pretty intensive effort to keep it out. So you have a lot of workflow processing where the raw product is really kept separate from the, the final cooked product, that final cooked product or cold smoked or whatever is really carefully managed to make sure that that as little as possible is getting in. Um, and again, the, you have different thresholds for these. Um, there's different ways to control all of it. You can cook 
a cook step is going to kill the steria. Right. Um, that's the one thing with that one is it's a scarier organism, but at the same time, all the normal controls work. It's a, uh, it's a I don't know. Botulism kind of scary. <laughs> well, that's why I didn't say that one yet. <laughs> Listeria is going to be controlled by just your normal. Okay. We're going to cook it uh, and get rid of it. Freezing and refrigeration doesn't kill it, but it stops its growth and keeps it below levels where it can infect you. Even if it's present. Salt uh, does too, doesn't it? Yep. So does salt and so does pH. So acidity. And that's why like in sushi, they have vinegar rice that helps control that, mm. that lowers the pH, makes it more acidic, prevents anything from being able to grow. And even though that's later on in the product stage, it's still a, a useful factor as it's in your body anyway. I mean, and it's uh, also why you can salt fish, like the most famous right. salt fish is bacala, the salt cod. You can right. salt fish and you know you can leave it on the counter for six years and it's fine because it's basically a salt block at that point. Exactly. But that prevents anything from growing. Anything um, from growing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Botulism, it's a little bit scarier just because you're not necessarily trying to kill the organism. It's not the organism itself that's a problem. It's that it forms these spores, these things called endospores that are very, very hard to get rid of. The, the organism itself can be easily cooked away or anything like that. The spores I are don't know designed, easily cooked away. And they require well, like easy. 240 degrees to cook it away. Uh, that's to kill the spores. Oh, um, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. To kill the um, the toxin 188F or 185 uh, Fahrenheit, you would, freezing does arrest the growth of the toxin and of the bacteria, but it doesn't get rid of it. So the issue is really the presence of that toxin. And again, these spores are kind of everywhere in the environment. They're in soil, they're on soil, dead yeah. plants. Um, but while the spores are everywhere and are very common, the conditions for the development of this toxin are not. Because it's not an infection. It's not just the presence of the organism. It's actually poisoning with botulism of a neurotoxin produced by the spores. And you, basically, it needs a certain pH. It has to be pretty unacidic. has to have low enough salinity. And it has to, and this is the big one, anaerobic environment, no oxygen. So that's why it can be primarily a problem with like canned product. Yep. Or, I was just going to mention that. So that the number one or incidences of botulism actually are in Alaska. A lot of these really weird home fermented, exactly. home canned stuff that, that either native Alaskans have done forever and like, well, you know, Louis died last year and we don't know why. Or it's some sourdough, some, you know, Alaska white dude who's like, <laughs> I'm going to can my salmon with a water bath and not a pressure can. And I'm right. fine. I've been, it's like the guy from Washington. I've been fine for 10 years doing this. And like a year 11, he dies of botulism. Yep. No, exactly. And kind of going back to what we described earlier in the, in the episode, uh, a lot of it's tied to that homegrown, you know, home packing, home foraging community where some of the regulations, again, that the commercial fishing industry is subject to is not involved. And that's where you get some of these botulinum issues, but yeah, it's a scary organism, but, um, there's a lot, again, a lot that can be done to make sure that it's not a problem for commercial product. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Filson. Filson Sporting Goods has for 125 years, their uncompromising commitment to quality has defined their authenticity. They have built trust within the community to become more than just a clothing brand. They are stewards of the American outdoor tradition. I have worn their gear for more than 25 years. 
I've worn it fishing, hunting, and even in just regular foul weather. I am almost always wearing a Filson lightweight rain jacket when uh, I'm fishing in rainy weather because it is at the same time light and waterproof. I love it to death and you should check it out too. Now back to the show. Yeah, kind of sliding back to where you went to graduate school. So in Scandinavia, there's a number mm-hmm. of fermented fish products. And the right. one that I've actually done and read a lot about is something called rockfisk, which is it's a fermented trout that's very popular in Norway. And all of the reading I've read about it is apparently in Norway, the number one cause of botulism poisoning is that. And they've traced it down to botulism that's present in soil. So it's typically done at home. So they all of the things that I've read are like, you need to bleach out and clean the hell out of your kitchen when you make this. Because even just a little dirt from your garden could mess you up bad. And it's an interesting product. It's basically lacto-fermented to the point where it gets cheesy. And I actually like it a lot when it's like three or four months old. And the Norwegians prefer it at a year because it's just much more stinky that way. I'm sure you've had Hakarl in Iceland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Hakarl is the same thing. And actually, I was laughing to myself just because you described. Somebody had to tell me before I could eat it. Just like, you must think of this as cheese. Yep. <laughs> That's the only way to eat it. Yep. Um, and you know you're in trouble when they bring out a potato liquor chaser of the <laughs> <laughs> kill it, kill everything. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Brennevin, which is uh, the drink over there, which is actually pretty good. But um, yeah, how Carl they bury it for uh, six months to a year and soak it in ammonia, and that's sort of how they control it. It's the pH step. Um, right? The other, yeah, yeah. The, the first people who did this were very hungry. It's the only thing you can think of. Well, no. Yeah. What happened was the first people who ate it either got super sick or died because it's that Greenland shark where you you apparently can't eat that Greenland shark uh, fresh. That's correct. There's a toxin involved. So that's why they cover it in ammonia and bury it. And whoever thought of it first to do that, just the amount of trial and error that probably went into that is extensive. Well, remember (laughs) Bjorn died, right? So Bjorn only buried it for a year. And, you know, (laughs) I love that it's ammonia too. So it'd be. Did we pee on it? Was that so, was that the step that we tried and it worked? It's like, <laughs> cool. So yeah. I, I definitely want to talk with you about another thing. And this may not be your area of expertise, but it's something that we should talk about, which is to say there is a strong feeling that blue water pelagic fish are less parasitized than the rest. So there's this very strong tradition of eating on the boat sometimes raw yellowtail or raw tuna or raw wahoo or the things that you get or or mahi-mahi is another one where these are deep water blue water pelagic fish that never go near a bottom of anything and Mm -hmm. there's data to back it up that there's virtually no parasites in the meat of any of those fish that i just mentioned however and i may be Actually, I'm just as I'm saying this, I'm thinking that, that swordfish actually do spend a lot of time on the bottom. Um, yeah. And swordfish are notorious for gigantic worms in them. Right. So, do you know anything about that? Not as much. Most of what I know is just based on anecdote. On the commercial side, we just tend to treat it as, you know, contaminated until proven otherwise, just as a matter of safety. But um, there is definitely still a culture of bringing something on board and eating it raw and much of what we've seen anecdotally does track with that. But at the same time, like 
it's not because it's only based on anecdote from what I've seen. As you said, there is data out there, but for the species that we deal with, we still try to treat it you know, as an issue until proven otherwise. Yeah, I can tell you, I personally have never seen a visible parasite in any wahoo, any uh, yellowtail, um, <clears throat> any tuna of any kind, uh, down from like bonita all the way up to bluefin, any dorado, which is mahi mahi. However, and this again may be tied to where they live. I have seen, and everybody out here who's caught one, um, amberjack, which are a cousin of yellowtail, can often be quite wormy. And right. there's this particular, I can't remember the name of the worm, but in the Gulf of Mexico and in the South, there is what I call a spaghetti worm because it looks like a piece of spaghetti and they can be huge and right. huge, like six, eight inches in a 20 inch speckle trout. And I don't know much about them, except that they, they're either there or they're not. And they tend to really, really like drum, which is why you don't eat big black drum, because they right. tend to be riddled with them. Do you know anything about that guy? I'm afraid I don't. Most of what I've dealt with is cold water species through my career, just being in Alaska and Iceland before that. At the same time, I would wonder, I bet our uh, state epidemiologist and state veterinarian that we work rather closely with probably knows quite a bit about both of those species, and they probably have uh, a lot more information than I'm capable of providing you. Mm, gotcha. But yeah, like uh, so I mean, for the benefit of the listeners out there, I'll tell you what I know. You know, <laughs> there is a, it is fraught to grill an, a whole speckled trout in the Gulf of Mexico because chances are, you know, one out of three is going to have enough you know, spaghetti worms in it so that when you dig into your filet, there's extra protein. I mean, again, <laughs> I mean, it dies, but it's, I mean, they're big. They're big enough to be like, oh my God, when you filet out right. a fish. And bigger drums seem to get them. It's the same worm that, that hangs out in the, and usually the heads of amberjack, which is really bizarre. Interesting. So they've developed sort of a different um, life cycle in different areas based on the species they're interacting with. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, which again, this goes back to just how, impressive these organisms are from an evolutionary standpoint like that's not something that just occurs all the time in nature that something is able to have that different of a life cycle based on its host right right i mean so the other things you have to worry about in warm water which is again it's not your area of expertise is uh cigatura and yeah. scombroid poisoning right um, so scombroid poisoning which you probably don't see at all in alaska do you not really except for with um herring uh, Pacific herring, which is uh, primarily just a bait fishery at the moment. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that it yeah. went all the way down to herring. Yep. Yep. So the, it can occur in herring if it's the time and temperature controls aren't observed uh, strictly. Uh, but again, up here, that's really just a bait fishery. So there's not tons of industry concern or, or around it. Uh, that might change as different species start getting involved in commercial operations. But uh, for the moment, it's just it's not something that we really often see. Well, describe for people what scumbird poisoning is then. Yeah, so it's basically the presence of uh, histamine from certain species. So it's things like um, mackerel and tuna, it's, it's biogenic amine. And primarily, it's able to just proliferate a, a fish after uh, time and temperature abuse. So if things aren't handled uh, as ideally as they, they could be, it's really most noted in like things like tuna, skipjack, mackerel, uh, sardines, herrings, things like that. Jacks. Uh, but it's, yep, jacks. Uh, it's not limited to fresh and frozen, uh, can be present in cans and cured products, uh, but that is a little bit more rare. In symptoms, it's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, can even have a bit of a rash, as I recall. General unpleasantness. Yeah, it's a histamine reaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 
So it's weird because it's not a parasite. It's not a disease. It's not any, it's basically, if you let this particular set of fish, it's all the blue fish, you know, like mm-hmm. blue fish, mackerel, jacks, tuna, all of these guys. And I didn't know it went down a herring, but that's good to know. They're all sort of blue fleshed fish. If you don't gut them and ice them and bleed them, especially if you're in, in tropical areas or very hot areas, uh, right. you run the risk of this histamine building up in the meat of the fish. So then when you eat it, you can get this pretty horrible reaction. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, again, prevention issue measures that um, are engaged in by the industry of, or industry members that pull those types of species. It's so important that they chill on board vessel, that there's um, a lot of good hygiene practices. You can help this by avoiding damage to the muscle tissue as much as possible, separation stages on the processing line. And then there's a lot of chemical testing that goes on as well. Um, oh, you so there's sure. a so that uh, you if you had a let's say you were in a tuna factory, you could test for it. Yeah, there are tests for this. Gotcha. Are there any other you know wee beasties or nasties that you deal with that we haven't <laughs> talked about? <laughs> I think we hit the big three, which I, to reiterate are primarily nematodes, botulinum, and uh, listeria, and then the toxins that we deal with that you mentioned as well, demoic acid and PSP. Another one that just it does come up in this circle of conversation often is some of the heavy metal contaminants. With fish, obviously, we primarily talk about mercury. And that does come up. It's not a beastie. It's uh, you know a risk of the environment and some human action, but it is sort of a health risk that is perceived to be tied to seafood as well. True. So um, actually, let's go on with it because I'm fascinated by this one because there's that one yeah. dude, he was like a stage actor in London who gave himself mercury poisoning because he essentially ate sushi either multiple times a day or pretty much every day for you know months uh-huh. and managed to give himself mercury poisoning. So apparently that's what it takes. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, there's been a lot of work done in the space of mercury just because it's something that the federal government looks into every five years or so with the dietary guidelines for Americans. And it's in fish, with what we've seen, especially with populations, and there's so many populations around the world that consume massive quantities of fish. And the primary issue that most people associate with mercury is always the um, neurocognitive impacts or, frankly, their ability to prohibit neurocognitive development if exposed with exposure to uh, pregnant women in a fetus. Mm. But what we've seen through a lot of meta-analysis, which is, you know, looking at existing studies that have gone on for decades and sort of collating this, Tom Brenna and Dr. Um, I forget the gentleman's name, but his last name is Hibbill, uh, have looked into this pretty extensively and just seen... Mercury, organic mercury or mercury that's in a fish is going to behave differently than mercury in isolation. And there's also other things present in a, in a whole fish fillet. You know, there's selenium, which has mutual binding affinity with mercury, and that can sort of not necessarily cancel each other out. There's a lot that we don't understand necessarily about that relationship, but it does not seem to have the neurocognitive issues or cause them necessarily that you might expect from some of those high fish populations. Like looking at native Alaskan populations, or populations in Scandinavia where they're eating much, much more fish than uh, what the USDA has is like its recommended levels of eight ounces weekly. And they've seen some evidence of better neurocognitive development. A lot of that's been tied to like uh, the omega-3s present, DHA in particular, just because that is such an important compound to the brain. The brain I think it's because there's no real fish up in the North country that are high mercury fish. Uh, there's not a lot that are, are high market. And frankly, up here, there's not either. Uh, almost all of our fish are considered the best choice uh, for that. And they're just, they're not super long lived 
apex predators that accumulate the high heavy metal content. So who would be the murderer's uh, row of mercury fish? Oh, that would be one sec. I'm actually, I don't have it on hand. There's a list. (laughs) I know swordfish is one of them. Yeah. Swordfish is on there. Uh, There's a few types of mackerel. Big tuna. Uh, Yeah. Big tuna are always on there. Uh, Like probably a king mackerel or a wahoo. Um, Sounds. Yeah. So king mackerel, marlin. I just went ahead and pulled up the FDA's list. Sharks, swordfish, tilefish. Yeah. Tilefish from the Gulf of Mexico and then big eye tuna or their big avoids. Gotcha. I've eaten all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you I know, know, again, it's too, like, right? I don't make a habit of it, you know? Right. Right. And there's different, like some of these bad choices you maybe have once a month or something, as opposed to every day for some like best choices. I think the FDA breaks it down now as to like how many weekly servings or how many times would be okay per yeah. week. But their best choices are like a four plus, you know, times a week. It's fine. And then there's some in the middle, of course, and that's where you get like monkfish, uh, bluefish, buffalo fish, things like that. But yeah, I mean, there's some really good information on some of the FDA's official documents about that as far as if you want to avoid some of the higher mercury fish. Yeah, the big ones here uh, where I live in Northern California are, uh, there's a fish called a Sacramento pike minnow, mm-hmm. which is, a, it's like a giant predatory minnow, but they live forever and they live in the Sacramento River. And the Sacramento River still has tons of mercury in it from the gold rush. Right. So they're off the charts. Um, I've eaten them, but like once. And, right. And then the other one is a surf perch in the San Francisco Bay, kind of for the same reason. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some like lesser known species that can accumulate them. And it's, it's kind of what you mentioned. It's striped uh, bass. Striped yeah, bass are yep. notorious. Like, Absolutely. Which is. Very amusing to me. I'm actually from Maryland originally, and that's kind of our big fin fish. As Rockfish. Far as yeah, exactly. And they can be an issue there. So people don't eat them as much as they used to. But that's still listed, by the way, as a good choice. <laughs> so uh, well, little... okay. Yeah. Because it, <laughs> you're just talking about mercury in that case. So when right. I grew up in Jersey, you know, there would be giant line siders like running through the New York Harbor and Hudson Bay. And it's their problem isn't mercury, it's, it's PCPs and all kinds of other pollution gated them. So this is kind of a thing for everybody listening to me in the middle of the country where they're still doing a lot of heavy industry or where they used to do heavy industry in the Northeast um, and around the kind of industrial areas in the South that are near water. There's a few in Alabama, Pensacola. The other thing, in addition to everything we're talking about is you should absolutely look up your states. Every state has kind of a list of fish advisories and it's, they're all localized. So the advisories in Lake Erie might be different from the advisories in Lake Superior. And, you know, if you're going to eat a ton of fish, none of this really matters if you're going to eat fish like every other week. But if you're going to eat a ton of fish, you should check that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also encourage your listeners to sit up, investigate a little bit of how their the fish management works at the local level, because it is, as you say, sort, sometimes it's down to the body of water and just how much information goes into all of that is just fascinating. I don't know if that's Maybe that's a fish nerd of me just being like fascinated by that. Well, <laughs> how, I mean, but I mean, even if you're not a fish nerd, like if my yeah. local river, <laughs> right? there's a river in Alabama that's notoriously polluted and yet lots of people fish it all the time. And you, know, you need to know that if you want to be healthy. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Or <laughs> <laughs> all the way around. <laughs> it's funny because I'm, I'm on podcasts a lot. Thanks for being yeah. on. Uh, where can people find you on the internet uh, if they want to learn more about what you do and or about uh, you know fish parasites in general? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you all to listeners who uh, were with me on this. And I can be found um, just 
probably email me is best. Uh, that'd be jburrows uh, at alaskaseafood.org or uh, go to www.alaskaseafood.org to uh, find our website. Cool. I will put both of that in the show notes. And again, thanks for being on. Uh, I hope to get up to Juneau at some point soon to either fish with Tyson or just generally hang out in Juneau because it's a great town. And we'll be looking forward to hosting you whenever you come through. Sweet. Well, that is our show for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by Filson and eFish. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. It is uh, a little scary, but a lot informative, and it, it actually gives you a pretty good understanding of you know the relative risks of the fish parasites that we encounter in pretty much everything that we catch. And short version is, yeah, you have to be aware of them, but it's not like it's a rampant plague or anything like that. As always, you can find me on social media. I am on Instagram at HuntGatherCook. Uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I also run a website, as you may or may not know, that is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is HuntGatherCook.com. And at HuntGatherCook.com, you will see a place where you could buy basically the companion to this entire season's podcast, which is my cookbook, Hook, Line, and Supper. That is Hook, Line, and Supper. If you decide that you want to get a copy, uh, you can buy a signed one right from my website and you get an actual coupon worth 20% off just for being a podcast listener. If you use the coupon code HuntGatherTalk, that is all one word, HuntGatherTalk, you can get a copy of Hook, Line, and Supper for 20% off and it will be signed and it will be sent directly from us. So, If you feel like supporting me and the podcast and the things that I do, I really would appreciate it. And thanks in advance for your support. Until next week, I'm Hank Shaw. You have a good time out on the water, wherever it is that you are fishing or gathering seafoody things. As always, be safe, have fun, and eat well.